pray that today will be edifying time which helps you to see Jesus for who he is and to worship and glorify him more. Now, friends, if you've been watching the news lately or been following any of the tabloids or things like that, as, as you do, you would, have, you would know something and that's that there's been royalty amongst us. Did you know that? There's been royalty amongst us. And I'm talking about, of course, Prince Harry and his wife, Megan. I don't know what her title is, Duchess of something. Sussex, thanks for that, Claudia. Uh, Duchess of Sus- Sussex. So we've had royalty amongst us. Uh, they've been going to Fraser Island. They've been seeing people. Um, and it reminded me of when they got married. They got married early this year. I don't know if you remember. That was a big televised event. And I remember actually watching the sermon of that wedding. I don't know if you remember the sermon. It was a key part of the wedding, actually. So with this man, Reverend Michael Curry. I don't know if you remember him. And what really surprised me about that particular sermon and more so the reception of the sermon was that it was very well received. And when you think about this, a Christian sermon in the secular media being well received, what's going on here? That's a bit odd. Um, and when I thought about it, I realized the reason that was is because um, Reverend Michael Curry was talking about an aspect of God which was very acceptable, very comfortable. And that is that God is a God of love. And that is 100% at the core of who God is. Yes. And everybody likes that message. That God is a God of love. And that is right. And that is true. But I wonder if Reverend Michael Curry had been talking about other aspects of God, whether the media would have been so accepting of his sermon as well. And when I asked you about who Jesus was, um, I wonder what sort of responses you're coming up with. Uh, powerful, good, kind, loving, all at the core of who Jesus is, who Jesus' character is. But I wonder if any of you talked about Jesus as the judge, Jesus as angry. These are aspects of Jesus that we don't often go to as our first point of call, but they're at the core of who Jesus is. This is part of who he is as the king. And today we're going to actually see Jesus as the judge, Jesus as angry, and we're going to see that this is a good thing. This is a good thing. And from Mark 11, we'll be seeing why that's the case. Um, last week, we just for a bit of context, we saw uh, that Jesus was coming and he, he declared the key statement of the entire book of Mark, and it's that the Son of Man has come to serve, not to be served, but to die, to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the heart of the message of the book of Mark. And this is the heart of what he's come to do. Jesus must die and he must do that to make the impossible getting to heaven. That's impossible for us. He dies to make the impossible possible. That's what we saw last week. And as Jesus steps closer to the cross, we wait for the event that this book has been building up to. And we pick it up in Mark 1, uh, Mark 11, verse 1. And if we look at the map, this is what's happening. Jesus has actually just come to Bethany. If you see Bethany, I remember I've got a laser pointer here. Yeah, Bethany right there at the Mount of Olives. This is a key area. And Jerusalem is just here. And that's where he's headed. He comes to Bethany, the Mount of Olives, and he's preparing to make his entrance into the capital city, to make his entrance into Jerusalem. And he sends two of his disciples to fetch a ride for him. And this is what Jesus wants. He wants a colt, a young donkey, 
So they go and they find this colt tied up. They bring it to Jesus. They lay their coats on this young donkey and Jesus sits on this donkey to ride into Jerusalem. Now, when you think about it, Jesus is king. This isn't exactly a majestic ride for the king to be taking in as he enters the capital city of Judea, of Israel, of to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. It's sort of like you imagine the queen if she um, was driving around in a Toyota Yaris instead of a Bentley. And no offense to Toyota Yaris owners, it's a good car. But it's not exactly a royal car, is it? It's not a majestic car. But that's the point, isn't it? Because as Jesus rides on a donkey, it, it reminds us of what sort of king he is. This is the humble king the lowly king, the servant king, the servant king. He rides in the city on this lowly animal and it's fulfilling prophecy from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The prophets from long ago prophesied about the king coming and the king coming on a donkey, lowly and humble. But he also comes in victory because, did you, did you remember what it said in the narrative? How did he enter the city? People laid their cloaks on the ground for him. People laid palm branches down for him. It was a victory entrance into the city of Jerusalem. And the people shouted, Mark 11 verses 9 and 10. Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, Hosanna is a Hebrew prayer of salvation, which means save. But as it went along, people just used it as an exclamation of praise, of praise, of victory. And the people declare that Jesus is coming as a messianic king, the king in the line of David, the greatest king of Israel. This is the king they've been waiting for. But I wonder if they actually understood how his kingship would come about as they shouted in victory. I wonder if they understood that he was heading to the cross. Now, as Jesus enters the city, um, the first place he goes is the temple. So he heads straight to the temple, um, the place, the, the center of Jewish worship, Back then, he goes, he goes to the temple and Nara tells us he heads into the temple, he takes a good look around and then he leaves. And we wonder, what did Jesus see? What is he going to do? How will he respond to what happens? Well, we're at point two. The king is angry. The next day is the day we actually see some action. Firstly, as Jesus journeys from Bethany, the city of Bethany near the Mount of Olives, into the city, he sees a f he's hungry and he sees a fig tree. And this fig tree is lush and green. And he walks up to the tree and he tries to find some fruit to eat, but he cannot find any. There's no fruit on this tree. And he says to the tree in verse 14 of Mark 11, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, some of you, as you hear the story, you're thinking, Jesus needs to chill out. What is wrong with Jesus? Why is he so angry at this fig tree? He just needs to relax a little bit. We'll, we'll soon see 
soon see the significance of the story as uh, the narrative rolls on. So keep the fig tree in mind. Because after the fig tree, where's Jesus headed? He's heading to the temple. He heads into the temple. And what does he see all around him as he steps into the house of worship of God? What does he see? Well, it's the equivalent of a farmer's market. There's animals everywhere. There's people changing money. It's loud. It's dirty. It's centered on money. And Jesus was outraged. If we see a temple a diagram of what the temple would have looked like, it would have been in the outer courts, that region outside of the center building. So in the outer courts, there's just tables set up. It's just a marketplace. And Jesus is outraged at this. The king is angry. He comes in and he overturns the tables of the money changers. He, he goes to those people selling animals and he throws over their chairs. Jesus is outraged at this. He declares two Old Testament writings from the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah. And hear his words in Mark 11 verse 17. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. A den of robbers. And think about this. This is, this is the house of God. This is the house of God. Can you imagine if people came into our church and set up stalls all around selling animals and it was loud and it was dirty and people were just shouting about money all around? We would be outraged at this. Imagine this is the center of worship. This is where everyone came. There wasn't local churches everywhere. This is where everyone came to worship God, to be in communion with God, to come before God. And it's been turned into a place centered on money on trade, not centered on God. This is disgraceful. It's disgraceful. Jesus is angry. You know what he's angry about? He's angry that the people have made God's house not about God. Not about God. In fact, they were hindering the worship of God. Do you know where those tables were set up? I showed you before that they were set up in the outer courts. Do you know what the outer courts were as well? That was the court of the Gentiles. It was the only place that non-Jewish people could come in anywhere near God's presence. So particularly, they were even hindering the worship of all the nations coming in. And this is what outrages Jesus, especially because this house, can you remember what it said? This house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. All nations, everyone is supposed to come to God's presence. But instead... People are being hindered from coming in. It's a disgrace, isn't it? And do you know whose fault it is? Well, have a look at verse 18 and look who responds to Jesus' teaching. He didn't address it to anyone particularly, but look who responds. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. The leaders of Israel, they knew they were responsible for this. They knew it. These leaders who were on the outside were pious and religious and good. They did all the right things, but in the end, they produced nothing to show that their life was a life that genuinely trusted in Jesus, that trusted in God as their God. Sort of like a tree with nice green leaves, but no fruit. 
Friends, it's no accident that the story of the fig tree comes immediately before this episode and comes immediately after this episode as well, that it frames this episode, because the fig tree is symbolic of something. The barren fig tree actually represents the hypocrisy and the sin of Israel, represented by its leaders. This imagery calls to mind the lament of the prophet Micah, an Old Testament prophet. Micah 7 verses 1 and 2 says this, What misery is mine! I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land, not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. There is none of the early figs that Jesus claimed that he he desires. There is no fruits of righteousness. Israel is barren. There is no upright people. There is, it's, there's no righteousness at all. This is what outrages Jesus. This is what the fig tree symbolizes. Just like the lush green leaves concealed a lack of fruit on the tree, the magnificence of the temple and the temple building concealed a lack of righteousness in Israel. There was no fruit. It was absolutely empty. And this is a disastrous problem. When you think about it, it's almost inconceivable that the house of God, the temple, would be turned into a marketplace. Think about that for a moment. We could never allow such a thing to happen in our own church, let alone the center, the lone center of worship back then for the Jewish people. It's a disgrace. But when you think about what happened in the temple, it's merely a result of people's hearts. Hearts not set on the honor and worship of God but set on the honor and worship of self. This is the heart problem that plagues all of us. All of us. God is the creator of all things. He's the one that deserves all glory and honor and power because he created all things. And by his will, they were created. Nothing is here without his will. He deserves the glory and honor and power. This is a God that speaks creation into being with just his voice. This is a God to be glorified. Yet, what do we do? We bring shame to God. We shame God. We dishonor God. We don't give Him the glory that He deserves. But instead, we glorify ourselves. We give honor to ourselves. We worship ourselves. How do we do that? Well, let me ask you, what do you live for? What do you live for? Do you live for comfort? Do you live for success? Do you live for self-satisfaction? Do you live for achievement? Do you know what's common in all those things? It's all about you. And it's not about God. It's not about God. If what you seek in your life is centered on yourself, then what you're seeking is not the honor and glory of God. It's the honor and glory of yourself. We ignore the glorious God of the universe who gave us everything. And we live for ourselves. This, this is disgraceful. This is shameful. God deserves our honor, yet we fail to give it to him. Think of your own parents. Think of your parents. Is it right for you as a child to treat them like nothing? Is it right for you to not recognize who they are? To reject them, to dishonor them, to shame them? to disobey them? Is that a right thing for you to do? This is wrong. 
and your parents will be rightfully offended at this. How much more so for the God of the universe, our Father, who's created us and given us everything and who we've treated as nothing. How much more is he offended at our shame, at our disgrace, at our dishonor of him? And if God is God, he cannot just sit back and let us continue to shame him and let us continue to dishonor him. He cannot tolerate this because he is God, right? Just as Jesus cannot tolerate the dishonor of God's house, God will not continue to tolerate our dishonor of him in our lives. And just as Jesus declares a judgment on Israel's failure to dishonor God, he declares a judgment for us too. There will be a day where it will be too late for us to show fruit, where it will be too late for us to try and bear fruit for God's glory, to show righteousness as an evidence that we follow God. The day when Christ returns is described by John the Baptist in Matthew 3, verse 10, as this. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. There is judgment coming, friends. There is judgment coming. There will be a day where all things are uncovered, where you cannot hide your lack of fruit. You cannot hide your dishonoring of God, you cannot hide your lack of righteousness. And those that do not produce fruit that spring forth from a faith and trust in Jesus will be cut down and thrown into the fire for eternity. And friends, this judgment, it's fearsome. But do you know what? We should desire it. We should desire it. We're at our third point. Bring on the king's judgment. As we return to the narrative, it's day three, and the disciples make their way back from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, and they pass by the fig tree, and they see it's withered to the roots. And Peter speaks up as always, and he sounds surprised, but, you know, it's Jesus, so he shouldn't be surprised. He says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you curse has withered. Look at this. This is amazing. And Jesus responds with a lesson on faith and prayer. Mark 11, verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their hearts, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Now, before we unpack this passage, let me say that this bit of Scripture is one of the most complex parts of Scripture in the entire Bible. Uh, Biblical scholars have a lot of disagreement about this. There's not one consensus about this. But let me do my best to help you understand this passage um, from my study and how the Holy Spirit's revealed it to me. At a quick reading, I think if you read that passage, uh, it seems to be saying that if you have enough faith, then whatever you believe will come true. You can have anything you want. Just believe. Believe. Just got to have faith. And if things don't happen, well, maybe your faith just isn't strong enough. You got to try harder. The reason that person didn't get better from your prayers is because you didn't have enough faith. You might have heard those sorts of things around. And I think this is a very dangerous view. And I think it's not what Scripture is saying here. And one of the principles that guides our understanding of God's Word is that context is key. Context is key. We don't just take scriptures out of 
context and impart meaning on them. We have to see what's come around it. And it seems very odd that Jesus would just start talking about a prayer, about praying for whatever you want, you'll get it, in the midst of the context that's going on. Because what has Jesus been talking about? Remember the fig tree? Jesus is, this whole section, it's centered on judgment. It's centered on judgment. Judgment on unrighteous people that do not honor God and do not bear fruit. And I think what these verses are about is judgment. Because this fits with the flow of what Jesus is speaking about. If you look at verse 23, Jesus says, um, says, If anyone says to this mountain, go throw, yourselves in, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt, it will be done for them. And when he says, this mountain, what I believe is talking about, he's actually talking about this mountain, the mountain that he's standing on at that very moment, the Mount of Olives. And Jesus here is making a prophetic statement because in the prophet Zechariah, the final day of the Lord where Jesus returns as judge to judge the world and establish his reign is described as this, Zechariah 14 verse 4. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. What I think it's saying is when Jesus is saying praying for the movement of the Mount of Olives is a prayer for judgment to come, for Jesus' reign to be established on this earth in accord to prophecy. It's a prayer for the reign, the kingdom, to come in and be established. And if you believe this word of God and pray for it, it will come. Verse 24 says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Have a think about this one. What, what does Jesus mean? Well, once again, we have to think about the context. When Jesus is saying, whatever, he isn't just saying, Everything you ask will happen. You just have to name it and claim it with enough faith and then it will come into being. That's not what he's saying. And I think we know that to be true. We pray for things and God doesn't give it to us because it's not the right thing to give to us. Even if we had a lot of faith that God would do it. Because God knows what is good for us. When Jesus is saying, whatever you ask for, what I believe it's saying once again, reading in context is the group he's talking to. He's talking to faithful Jewish people. And when he's saying whatever, it's whatever these faithful people of God pray. Uh, it's sort of like um, when you get a menu at a restaurant and they say you can have whatever you want. It's not whatever. It's, you know, it's constrained by what's there. And what Jesus is saying here is that whatever you guys have been praying for as faithful people of God, if you trust that it will happen, it will happen. At the core of faithful uh, prayer requests for the Jewish people is this. This, These are the sorts of things they're praying for. We might find it hard to relate to, but these are the sort of things that they always prayed for. That the kingdom of God would come and be established. Those are their daily prayer requests. Remember how Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Thy kingdom come. The, the, the establishment of the kingdom of God is at the heart of the prayer requests that were amongst God's people at the time. And Jesus is saying, if you believe in this, if you trust that this will happen, you will receive the kingdom. You will be part of that kingdom as it comes. And there's a principle for us here because prayer 
Prayer is not about working up more faith and just going, I just got to trust a little bit harder and then I can activate God. It's like I haven't quite gotten to that level where I can just activate God's power, you know? Got to work up a little bit more faith. It's not about our faith in terms of trying to generate more faith in and of ourselves. Because once again, that's very me-centered, isn't it? But prayer is about trusting in God's faithfulness, trusting in His power, trusting that whatever He has promised will happen. That is what prayer is about. Prayer is based on the faithfulness of God. Things happen not because we've prayed really, really well, but because God has promised that He will act in this world and He fulfills His promises. He calls on us to trust His good and perfect will, to believe and to pray in line with His plans. And these are the things that He promises will come about. And friends, I wonder... What is your prayer life like? What do you pray for? How much of your prayer life is centered on God's will and how much of it is centered on yourself? Have a think about that one. I know if you're anything like me, I can be a very selfish prayer. Yeah, there's plenty of things I can think of to pray for myself, but do I pray for what God has shown me is His will? What in His word He's revealed as His plans for the entire universe? Do I pray for those things? Oftentimes, they're not on my agenda, if I'm to be honest. The challenge for us is to pray like Jesus prays. And can you remember what Jesus prays? And this is Jesus Christ praying, right? So you can't doubt his faith, but he prays, not my will be done, but yours. Not my will be done, but yours. If we look at the example of Jesus' prayer life, that's what we can take away. And what is the will of God? Not my will, but yours. What is the will of God? The establishment of the kingdom of God. The universal reign of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 tells us that all things are being gathered under Jesus Christ. That's where the universe is heading. This is God's agenda. This is His will. And and central to that plan of uh, God's reign in Jesus Christ coming to this earth, central to that is the judgment of the king coming as well. That's, you can't separate those things. And that sounds uncomfortable. In one sense, I'm telling you to pray for judgment to come. It sounds very uncomfortable, doesn't it? It doesn't sound very loving. It doesn't sound very kind. But that's something we should desire because there is so much brokenness and sin in this world that we must desire for the judge to come. Don't you feel angry when you, f- you hear of unborn children being killed by the thousands? Don't you feel angry when you hear of children being sold into sex slavery? Don't you feel angry at the abuse and injustice in relationships all around this world? Don't you feel angry at that? Well, Jesus is angry at that. And he will do something about it. He will come back as a judge and he will put all things right as he establishes his good and perfect rule over this universe. His judgment is good. This is what we should desire. His anger is right. It's just. When is the last time you prayed for those things? God has promised that the king will come and judge and put all things right. Do you you believe that wholeheartedly? Is that what you desire to come? Do you want that? In one sense, it's scary to think that judgment will come. 
you know, to pray for judgment because if we look at our own hearts, we know that we're not quite sure whether we're going to be on the right side of judgment when God comes back. And that's a fearsome thing, rightfully, to be feared. But let me tell you, you don't have to fear. You don't need to fear. And let me show you why. Open up to Mark 12 with me. Mark 12. We didn't have this in our reading, but this is where we'll finish today with a parable that Jesus talks about. Because Jesus enters the temple um, after um, this little teaching with the disciples and the Pharisees come and confront him and go, Where is, where's your authority from? They start to oppose him. Jesus doesn't answer them because he knows they're not genuine. They're just trying to test him. And the conflict is rising. It's palpable. This conflict is ramping up. It just keeps saying that they're seeking to destroy him, to kill him. But this is all part of the plan. Have a look at chapter 12 with me. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. And he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And then will the owner of the vineyard, and what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Jesus tells a prophetic parable about his own fate. Could you see Jesus speaking of himself in that story? The conflict between Jesus and his enemies will ramp up to the point where he will be killed, where he will be killed by those people that were entrusted to take care of what God has given them. The the people entrusted to take care of the vineyard will kill the son, the heir, the king. They will kill the king. But this is God's plan. Because through the death of the son comes hope in the face of anger, comes hope in the face of God's judgment. Because we are under God's anger. We are all under God's anger. Just like Israel, we have failed to honor God as we should. But where we have failed, Jesus hasn't. His life was set entirely on the honor and glory of the Father. So much so that he went to die on the cross. And how how on earth would that glorify the Father? How? You might be asking that question. Because Jesus faces the anger of God for sinners. He faces the anger of God so that forgiveness can come, which means something which means that people can come back to God. People can come back into the presence of the Father. They can come into His presence for eternity. What will they be doing there? What will we be doing for those who trust in Jesus on that final day? Worshipping. Worshipping God. Honouring God. Glorifying God for eternity, just as we were made to do 
just as we were always supposed to do, giving him the honor and glory that he deserves. Jesus endured the greatest dishonor, the greatest shame on the cross so that we could come into God's presence and give him the honor that he deserves. Friends, if you trust in Jesus and what he has done for sinners, you can look forward to this coming judgment that will come. I guarantee you that it will come. You can look forward to this judgment with new eyes. You can pray for judgment to come in confidence. You can ask for Jesus to come and establish his reign and rule. You can actually pray for those things. You can ask for the king to come and put things right. And you can pray for those things with no fear. But we can pray centered on the glory of God and the establishment of his kingdom so that that may happen. That should be our prayer. Is that your prayer? I'm going to invite our brother Richard up and he's going to lead us in prayer now. Good morning, church. Uh, let's pray in response to our sermon today. Uh, today we'll be praying for uh, Jesus' return. We'll also be praying for a difficult topic of child abuse, and we'll be praying for us, for the meet team uh, at this church. So uh, if you're in agreement with our prayer points together, let's uh, all say amen together after each point. Uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we give you all the glory and the honor and the praise that you rightfully deserve and you alone deserve. Lord, thank you so much for uh, the sermon uh, we've heard this morning from Pastor Iggy. Thank you for uh, the sobering message we've heard in the Gospel of Mark, words that come from you alone. Uh, Lord, uh, we pray uh, and we repent uh, for uh, our own hypocrisy and sin. Uh, Lord, well, we know that you made this world uh, a perfect world uh, and we brought sin into it through our disobedience. And uh, Lord, we thank you and praise you that uh, you've uh, sent your one and only Son into this world to die uh, for our sins, to pay the, the price for our ransom. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that uh, you've done everything on the cross. Uh, and that, uh, Lord, we just pray that you'll give us uh, eyes and, uh, and renewed hearts to see the world through your eyes. Uh, Lord, uh, we pray for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done. Help us, Lord, not to live our selfish and self-centered lives based on what we want, but Lord, help us to uh, desire uh, your return, the day that you'll come again, uh, that you'll set this world right and that you'll restore it. And Lord, help us to look forward to the day that you bring justice as our righteous and just King, uh, our God, uh, our servant God. Thank you, Lord. Uh, and we thank you for this, um, uh, this message that you brought to us this morning. And we praise in your mighty uh, and powerful name. Amen. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, this morning we also want to um, pray for a very difficult topic, uh, the topic of uh, child abuse. Uh, child sexual slavery and Lord we know that this is uh, a symptom and a result of this broken world that we are in uh, it's a result of our own human sin and Lord you've 
you've called us to come into your kingdom as children. And Lord, it's uh, because of our sin, uh, we see these, uh, these tragedies and tragic things being committed against the most vulnerable and in innocent in our world. And Lord, we know that uh, you're a righteous God and that you're, uh, you're right to be angry with these things. Uh, help us to be angry about these things too. Help us to uh, have a heart that um, cries out for these uh, these children that have been uh, the victims uh, who have grown up from these abuses. And Lord, we pray for the victims uh, who may be even amongst our midst, or for those that we hear about in this world. Lord, we pray for um, the peace uh, of your gospel uh, to bring them peace and, and redemption uh, and hope. Uh, we pray that uh, your gospel will bring uh, yeah, cleansing and peace to, to those who have gone through things like this. And uh, Lord, we, we pray for uh, the hands for you uh, to raise up many hands of workers uh, to, to fight against these injustices in our world. Uh, we pray that um, you help us uh, to have a heart uh, to pray uh, and to, yeah, just to, to struggle against the injustice in our world. Uh, we pray for those uh, victims uh, who uh, may still be struggling. Uh, we pray for those who may still be seeking justice and who have, are having a difficult time moving on uh, because uh, there still has been no justice for them. Uh, Lord, yes, we pray that um, they will find uh, peace and justice uh, in your gospel. And we pray that uh, they will find hope uh, in your promise of eternal life and the promises of the world to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, finally, Lord, we would like to pray for the, the meat team. Uh, thank you, Lord, that we have a missions evangelism action team at our church. Uh, we thank you for the volunteers uh, who uh, give their time to think, pray, and plan about how we as a church here at CPE uh, can best spend um, uh, the money that you've given to us for missions. Lord, we pray um, that as a whole church, you'll make us all a missions evangelism action team. Help us to have a heart for your work in the world. Help us to continue to pray and support and give generously to the work of your kingdom. Help us not to keep our money, our time, and resources for ourselves, but to, to see the world for what it is in your eyes. And that's, um, that this, world full, this is a world full of sinners, a world full of people uh, that need the gospel to be brought from darkness to light. We thank you and praise you, Lord, that you've brought us from darkness to light, uh, that your gospel is available and free to all. Uh, Lord, we, we pray for the, the work of your gospel uh, in this world, and we pray that um, our church here at CP will be a, a light to our community and, and a light to all nations. And we pray this in Jesus' wonderful and mighty name. Amen.